Whether you're looking for a convenient refresher course, or a way to earn your Pragmatic certification at your own speed, or the chance to take a Pragmatic course from your specific corner of the world, then Foundations On Demand is the solution you need. Get the same great content, tools, and templates our Foundations course is famous for in a flexible and easy-to-use online learning platform. Learn the skills you need to build and market products people want to buy. And earn your Pragmatic Institute certification anywhere, anytime. No more travel worries, no more time zone issues, just truly great training. Experience the new way of training with Foundations On Demand from Pragmatic Institute. Visit pragmaticinstitute.com foundations to learn more. And welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I am Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. And today, I am joined by Daniel Elizal. He is a product executive and advisor. He's got a passion for IoT, innovation, climate change, and he's just an all-around great guy and great thinker in this space. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's a pleasure being back. This is going to be my third time in the show. How lucky I am. That's how we know we like having you on, right? When we get to have you more than once, <laughs> that's always good. But Daniel, I know uh, I know for those who've heard some of the other episodes, they know a little bit this, but can you tell a little bit about your background and what brought you kind of where you are today? Of course. So first of all, again, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Let's see, start from the beginning. My name is Daniel Elizalde. I was born and raised in Mexico City. I studied uh, electronics engineering, and I was lucky to get my first job in uh, an industrial automation company in Austin, Texas. And so th throughout my career, I have about 23 years of experience in mostly product and strategy roles in multiple industries uh, from manufacturing, automotive, airspace, retail. But one of my passions has been climate. And so a few years back, my wife and I moved to Silicon Valley, where I joined a company called STEM, which is a high-growth startup in the energy storage field. I was leading their whole end-to-end -end product portfolio of IoT. Did that for some time. Then I uh, started teaching IoT product management at Stanford University. Been doing that for about six years. I had the opportunity then to join Ericsson, the telecommunication giant, as their vice president, head of IoT, leading innovation for 5G and IoT in Silicon Valley. And then the pandemic hit, right? Everything mm -hmm. changed. We decided to move back to Austin, where our family is, and uh, with our you know, toddler daughter at the time. And uh, here, I've been focused on coaching and advising companies in the climate tech space. I am a mentor in a couple of climate accelerators, and I recently published my first book, The B2B Innovators Map. So it's, I've been using that a lot to advise product teams and founders and CEOs on how to get from idea to the first 10 customers. Nice. Well, first of all, congratulations. That is a good accomplishment for sure. Um, and okay. I think I would love to dig a little bit into the B2B kind of innovators map because I think 
innovation is one of those things that's like the holy grail to some extent of products, right? It's like everybody wants to have a product that's truly innovative and we'll argue about what innovation means and, and all these things. But And because we argue about what it means, it also feels slightly magical, right? Like it's just, it maybe it just happens by chance, right? You know, you know, you have to get struck by lightning or you're never going to get that innovative product kind of idea. And I think the idea that there is a, a process and, and an approach to be able to do this and do this consistently is exciting. And, and I think you do a great job of laying it out. So let's dig right in. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I, I completely agree. A lot of people think about innovation and, you know, you listen to anything on, on technology on LinkedIn and everybody has to be innovative. We all have to innovate, but very few companies know what that means and how to do it. Um, so that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. The other angle to the book is I wanted to focus specifically on B2B. And not only that is my background, but also I've noticed that for product people, a lot of the content out there is B2C. And so when you're dealing with business to business, and especially in the industries that I deal with, you know, energy, healthcare, automotive, transportation, et cetera, you know, the, the B2B advice doesn't always hold true. So that is the premise, the premise of, of the book. So for me, the way I define innovation in the book is it's just the process of how to provide value to your customers and to your company. And I think it's very important to think about it from that perspective, right? It's, it's a process, so it can be learned and it can be iterated upon and, and it's something that can be understood by everybody. The whole goal is to provide value. And so value could mean a new product, a new service, a new pricing model, a new business model, an updated product. So it, it varies, but it also should provide value to your company, whatever the company goal means, growth, more revenue, expanding to new territory, et cetera. Right? So as a product leader, it's important to understand where innovation falls and then how do you drive it forward? And that's what, that's what the book is about. So in this case, innovation isn't so much in the technology that's used or the form that it comes out. It's in the value delivered, right? Is it, is it because we think of that value as, as not just incremental, but it, like it's innovative because it really jumps forward the value? Or is, is any product that delivers value innovative? Yeah, I think every product that delivers value can be innovative. And I think that's one of the misconceptions that it has to be this super revolutionary thing. Not necessarily. If it's delivering value in a way that it's new for your customers or it's new for your company, that is innovation. And so when you're working in an innovation team in a company or you have the title of BP of innovation, that's really what you're doing is trying to find better ways to solve customers' problems that can deliver value to them and to your company. So in the book, I laid out a specific framework on how to go about doing that. And I can, I'm happy to tell you more about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'd be great because like one of the things you talk about is, is, you know, you, you know, it's successful when it delivers value. And so you have to figure out how you're going to figure out the problems they have and how you're going to measure that success. So yes, let's lay out the map. <laughs> oh, for sure. So I, I call this the B2B innovators map and I break down the journey, the innovation journey in six stages. And the journey is from idea to your first 10 customers. Before I go into the actual stages, I'll tell you why I selected 10 customers. See, when, when you're starting to work in innovation, you, there's a lot of terms that are very confusing. And innovation is, 
confusing and uncertain as it is, but then we hear this term says you have to go to minimum viable product or you have to have product market fit. And those terms just only muddy the waters because you ask 10 people what product market fit is, they will tell you 10 different things. And so as an innovator, as a, as a person responsible for driving innovation, you have to be as concrete as possible so that you can actually drive the alignment within your company. And so instead of using product market fit, I focus on delivering value to your first 10 customers. And that is the milestone. Now, as you know, in B2B, a customer is not a user, a customer is a company. So Walmart, Target, those are customers. And you might have hundreds, if not thousands of users within your first 10 customers. So the idea is that if you are able to solve a problem and deliver value to your customer, to your first 10 customers, then you know you're on the right track to start investing more in growth. And so the whole idea of the journey is unless you can prove 10 successful, then you're still not in the clear. And the reason I chose 10 is because most companies don't get 10 customers. Hmm. If you look at the statistics, you know, over 90% of new initiatives fail and they don't get, they get one, they get two or three customers and it, it breaks down. So what I want to do with the book is provide a blueprint on how to minimize that risk and uh, reduce that uncertainty to getting to your first 10 so that then you can continue to invest. Okay, so that's the background. So let me tell you the actual stages. The six stages of the B2B Innovator Map is strategic alignment, market discovery, user discovery, solution planning, prototyping, and early adopter. Now, this process is not linear. It's iterative. So you have to go from, there are clear gates to go from one stage to the next. And if you don't meet that criteria, it's okay to iterate in that stage, and it's okay to go back. Okay. And the whole idea is the first three stages, strategic alignment, market discovery, and user discovery, are geared towards understanding the customer outcome you want to solve. And then the second stage is solution planning, prototyping, and early adopter. It's about iterating and testing your hypothesis in a B2B context so that you can deliver that value. So that's how the, the map is laid out. And I'm happy to go deeper into anyone. Yeah, let's just kind of walk through each one and a little bit about why it's what it means and why it's important and any little tips you can give for that, that section. So we'll start with strategic alignment. Of course. This one is an interesting one because when I started thinking about the book, I wasn't sure I should include strategic alignment because I thought, you know, anybody doing innovation knows what they're after. And it turns out that I, I started talking to, you know, hundreds of product professionals. Strategic alignment is one mm. big problem. What that means is that there's not a lot of clarity on what business outcome you want for your customer. So basically, strategic alignment asks the question, what problem are we solving for our customers? So this map is very customer driven because you want to solve a problem for your customers and in the process that would solve your own problems. So strategic alignment is all about engaging with your leadership team to get alignment on what problem you're going to solve. Now, this has to be high level. It's just directional. Right? So for example, a problem to explore could be reducing the cost of the electricity bill at buildings or increasing the marketing conversion from leads online, like those kind of high level things. But if we know that we're going to explore that problem, then we can start going through the innovation process to figure out 
the pains and a solution. One of the key things that I point out on strategic alignment is it's important to know that this is a problem you want to explore. That doesn't mean that you're going to find the real problem or that that you can actually support a business out of that problem. Mm -hmm. You're going to explore it. So as a product leader, one of the things that I make very clear in the book is that throughout the whole journey, you have to keep that balance between understanding the market and bringing your internal company along the journey with setting right expectations and letting them know what's going to happen and, and what could go wrong, which is a lot, right? So that's that's about strategic alignment. And I think it's a couple of things that I, I want to touch on there. One, you talk a lot about solving problems for customers. One of the things that at Pragmatic we do is we separate the market from customers, right? And I think I think you mean here the same way we mean market, where not only is your existing customers, but it's making sure that you're looking at that wider market so that you're you're kind of seeing bigger. So that's just for level setting. And then the the other piece that you touched on a little bit, which I think is interesting, and I think it's sometimes where innovation gets lost, right? Is is there is a point where you are exploring and exploring is super important and you're not gonna have all the answers. And it's easy to get, you know, when someone's like, well, you can throw out all those questions that are gonna, you know, kind of pop the bubble. And I think it's important to give your space to explore, but also to know when to check back and make sure, okay, I'm exploring, but I'm way off the base. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you talk about that on the book, but I think that's that's sort of where often innovation dies and the practicality and it dies before you fully explore it. I think you're completely right. And in the book, I do have clear criteria of what it means to explore each of the stages mm-hmm. and what is it that you have to get from the exterior world? And also what do you have to communicate back mm-hmm. to your organization And what kind of support do you expect from your organization at each stage of the journey, which is super important, right? Yeah. Um, I think one of the big things about leading innovation, which is a little bit uh, bigger umbrella than than product management, right? Because you're really kind of like an entrepreneurial fashion. It's about always gaining that support from the organization and make sure you're keeping the funding. and, And that has to do with bringing people along through the innovation journey, which usually people in leadership roles don't understand, you know, they just want something to sell in Q3, right? And right. They're wondering, can I get this tomorrow? tomorrow. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so once you have that strategic alignment of a potential uh, problem to explore, the next stage of the journey is market discovery. And that's exactly what you were alluding. Here, the goal of market discovery is to understand who has the pain mm. that you are looking to explore, to be very specific understanding what industry you're going to target, what uh, geography, what use case, because all of those things together form your target market and different target markets will have very different solutions. So it's very important to identify which target market you're going to go after or at least explore, whether that target market is big enough to support your business. And then talking to the person responsible for achieving that outcome in your customer and understanding what is their real pain. So that's that's a huge part. So for example, let's let's go with the example of you're going to save, you're going to help companies save on their electricity bill. Well, which companies, right? And so in the market discovery, you have to specify, well, companies that manage buildings from one to 20 stories and in the United States, 
Okay. Who in that organization has the pain? Who is responsible? Who is tasked with reducing their energy bill? Well, let's say the director of operations. Okay. And so at that point, you talk to the director of operations and say, what is your biggest problem towards reducing energy bills? Right. And so you have to see, you know, is there enough, are there enough buildings of one to 20 floors in the United States that need to reduce energy bills? And are, is there a consistency between all the director of operations of those buildings on what their pain is around that? Right. So that's what market discovery is all around. And in the book, I have you know, very explicit tutorials on how to do this. And here, are you, are you very much focused on, uh, so we have the idea of a buyer persona and the user persona, right? Mm-hmm. In, dis- in the market discovery, I know you're going to go to user discovery next, which I'm, spoiler, pretty sure is about focused on user. On uh, market <laughs> discovery, is it, is it also users? Do you talk to buyers then? Or is that just really not in this process? It is, and it's a really good point. So in the market discovery, I'm talking to buyers. Now, in the book, I make a, a specific distinction that I, uh, I'd love to share with you. In the book, I don't call them buyers. I call them champions. Mm, okay. The reason is mm-hmm. because usually what I've seen in, in my experience, a buyer usually comes much later in the process when you have something robust and a mature product. But when you're early stages of mm-hmm. innovation, mm-hmm. what you're looking for is a champion, somebody that's going to champion your untested solution and is going to trust you to bring you into the company. That's why I call them champions. But yes, in, great in my yeah. yeah, in my definition, a champion is a person responsible for achieving a specific business outcome that is going to partner with you to to do it. Right. Yeah. All right. So you've got strategic alignment. You've got a clear mm-hmm. understanding of who your targets are. They have mm-hmm. a common problem. All those things. And then we're going to move to user discovery. Yes, user discovery. So the the difference is that in B two B. The champion is responsible for a specific outcome, but then it takes the combined work of a lot of people to be able to produce an output towards that outcome. So let me give you an example. Let's say that the the problem you're trying to solve is for BPs of sales to get better visibility into their expenses of their team. Okay, that's their task, and so the users are going to be people using, let's say, a CRM system to track expenses. But those are you know, the, the account managers, the, the sales reps, the admins, the all these different people that together are going to use your system and their output is going to roll up to eventually provide more visibility to the champion. And that brings a really interesting perspective in B2B because I'm sure you've experienced this, right? Sometimes you use a product, an enterprise software product, and it's like, oh, the experience for me is really bad. As a product leader, you have to make some of those decisions, especially this early in the journey, because you might need to prove to your champion that you are providing the right level of value for one or two users. And then the rest of the user ecosystem, as I call it, they might get just a sprinkle of features and as you grow, you will beef up those ones. But initially, the goal of the user discovery stage is to identify all the users in the ecosystem and then understand who has the biggest pain that if you could solve that pain, you would have a tremendous value proposition for the champion, not for that user, but for the champion. So that's what user discovery is all about. Excellent. And, and I have to say, though, 
everything is iterative, right? It's possible that you find a good champion and then you go into user discovery and it turns out that you know the ecosystem and there's no real problem that you could solve. Mm. You have to go back to market discovery, try a different market, try a different champion. Sometimes you even have to go back to strategic alignment and say, well, we're going to have to explore a different problem. Right? So, yeah. But even though it sounds laborious, this iterative steps uh, back and forth are a lot faster than just going on a hunch, developing a full software solution, and then just hoping that it's going to work and fixing it later, you know, which yeah. is what most companies do, unfortunately. Yeah, no, we all we all know of more than one company that's done that. Some of us have bought mm -hmm. products from those companies and then think, oh. <laughs> so, okay, so now we know, we, we feel like we've got a, a good target market. We've got a good understanding of the users and the problems, and we think we can solve it. Right, but there's the think we can solve it to can we solve it, which I suspect is the solution planning. Correct, and that's as I mentioned before. The first three stages: strategic alignment, market discovery, and user discovery are all about understanding that clear problem. Solution planning, it's a shorter stage, and it's all about working with your engineering teams and saying, knowing what we know of our customer, could we provide a potential solution that can address these needs, and what are the biggest assumptions that we are making that we need to go validate? So here in the solution planning stage is where I, I introduce the, top, the concept of a hypothesis roadmap. Because at this point, you don't need a product roadmap because you don't know exactly what you're building. All you have is a set of assumptions. And at this stage of the innovation journey, it's all about coming up with ways for quickly testing those assumptions to make sure that you are reducing the risk of building the wrong thing. Because mm. the, the whole purpose of this journey is to ensuring that you're building the right product for the right people. And that is very iteratively. So the goal of the solution planning stage is figuring out, okay, how could we potentially build this? And how do we actually validate our assumptions? Mm -hmm. And so then, so we have a couple of ways we think we could potentially build it. And then that I think segues right into prototyping. Mm -hmm. Right. And how do you kind of, in your mind, what are some of the ways that you think, okay, now I'm ready to prototype, right? How do, yeah. Because I think it's really interesting you made those two distinct stages and I think it's probably really smart, but I suspect that there's a, a desire to like squish them all together to do it faster. Exactly. Exactly. Because the solution planning is all about discovering potential risks. What do you prototype first? Mm -hmm. Right. I, I see a lot of companies say going, it's like, oh, we're going to prototype the front end. Well, that. That is not a risk at all, right? Well, it's <laughs> this other thing, right? So it's figuring out what do you actually go and prototype. And then as you go into the prototyping stage, notice that I didn't call it the development stage, right? I call it prototyping because I want to give the feel that you still don't know if you're doing the right thing. And so in the book, I describe going in a, in a journey of prototyping, which can start with back of the napkin diagrams to sketches, to wireframes, to low fidelity mockups, to click-through prototypes, all the way to working prototypes, right? So as you are gaining evidence, you are increasing the fidelity of the prototype. And so you have assumptions and you say, we're gonna test it by drawing something on a napkin and showing it to our champions or our user ecosystem. Oh, it's in the right track. Okay, increase the fidelity, increase the fidelity. So that way you're always increasing the fidelity based on actual customer validation. And, and what you're really testing for in the prototyping stage are three things, desirability, feasibility, and viability. So desirability, 
will the customer want this product? Because the fact that we build it, it might not be the right solution. So we might have the problem right, but the solution is not right. Mm -hmm. So we have to test that through prototypes. Viability, could we actually have a business out of this? And then feasibility, can we build it? And, and I make a, a, an emphasis here about a couple of things. Feasibility, I, I break down in the book in multiple types of feasibility, right? One of them is technical feasibility, meaning can our company build it? Mm -hmm. Not can it be built, can our company build it? Do we have the skills? Examples, right? The solution requires hardware and we have no hardware expertise. Mm, it's not technically feasible. Right? Mm -hmm. Or it's it's heavy on data and AI, and we don't have an AI team. Mm, it's going to be hard. Right? The other aspect that you're testing in terms of feasibility is technology feasibility. Oh, this a great solution would be to deliver packages via drones. Mm, the technology is not there. It might be now, but the technology is not there. Or this needs to be done with certain networking technology. Oh, you know what? That's not stable enough, or it's too expensive, right? And then another area for uh, feasibility is operational feasibility. Once we deploy this, can the company actually operate an enterprise product like this? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it requires services. Maybe it requires a lot of integrations. And so all of those things you're testing. And in the book, this prototyping section is pretty robust with like a lot of different things that you have to test. And more importantly, how do you test them? Right? So very, very important. You can spend a good time amount of time there. I also, I think it's, again, I think often innovation dies when feasibility conversation happens first, Yes. right? You've jumped to an assumption about the problem and how it should be solved and like, well, we can't do that. And you move on. And you're like, if you think about it here, it's, it's fifth of six, right? I mean, like really understanding the problem and really opening up all the different ways can, you have to understand the problem at a very different level in order mm -hmm. to really be able to think about all the different solutions. And when you jump on the surface there, you could easily kill something that if you'd explored a little bit deeper, there may have been um, good opportunities for you to solve those problems. I completely agree. And, and even though the prototyping stage is uh, the fifth stage, still I advocate that you need to start by focusing on desirability. Mm. Because if you can build it and if you can make money, it doesn't matter if nobody wants it. Absolutely. And I actually advise a lot of companies that say, yes, we, we did all this work and now we're working on, you know, the technical prototypes. And it's like, but do customers want your solution? Like, Well, and if they do it. and you have trouble with the others, there may be options. There may be partner options or buy options, right? But I there's nothing you can, if no one wants it, right? like, and nothing you can do about that. Just to be very clear. But there may exactly. be, if it's if that is strong enough, there may be other options in some of the other areas. Exactly. You're completely right. And one of the things that I made an emphasis on the book, it has a lot, a lot of real world examples, all of them that I was involved, either me leading the teams or my clients. And of course, I've, all the names have been anonymized to protect the innocent, right? But, uh, but I have clear examples of, of how going through prototyping, thinking that you have something and then it ends up not working out. Well, you have to go back to solution planning. It's like, well, that didn't work. What can we do? We know the problem is real but it didn't work because of feasibility or, or viability. Okay, well, and you said, like you said, at this point, should we partner? Should we change architectures? Should we, and that's where the alignment with your company is also super important at each stage because you might come up with something that is desirable and feasible and viable from a business perspective, 
But there's this one element that I call internal viability, meaning will your company Mm. be willing to back up this innovation now that they see what it is, right? Because they've invested in the exploration. But now that they see, it's like, oh, yeah, no, we can't support that because we don't have the systems. It's a different market. It's more complex than we want. It's heavy on services. I, I list a lot of different things, right? But you have to have that connection back to the business all the time to make sure that it's feasible, viable, and desirable externally and internally. That makes a ton of sense. And that's part of the alignment piece, right? So, okay, so we've got a feasible, viable, desirable product, and then we're going to go to early adopter. Yes. So if you have a working prototype that is so good that a customer is willing to pay for it, that's the gate to go into early adopter. Now, here, there's a couple of concepts here that I want to point out. I, I use the Jeffrey Moore's concept for early adopter from his Crossing the Chasm book, which means somebody that... Uh, has a pain and is willing to try out untested solutions in the market. So it's very important to identify early adopters as opposed to pragmatists, because mm. otherwise for innovation, you won't get. And that's a big challenge and a common mistake that I see of established organizations. They say, oh, we have this innovative product. We're going to push it through our existing channels or to our existing customers. It's going to bounce back. It's, mm. a, it's a different level of maturity. You have to find the right early adopters within those companies that are willing to try out and take the risk on their reputation and their budget, et cetera, to give you a try. Is it, when you're looking for those early adopters, is it personality styles and, or is it more of the acuteness of the problem they have? Or like, what are the factors that we're looking for there? Yeah. One is acuteness of the problem for sure. And the other one is their willingness to take risks. Mm. Have they tried things that are at this early stage, have are they okay running with the prototypes? Can they find the budget to buy something that is not coming from, you know, Microsoft or SAP or you know those kind of things? And 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 usually they they are the ones that are, that go to the trade shows and are willing to try things and have this little side budget in their drawer to say, yeah, I can you know squeeze in ten k for us to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the people that you wanna that you wanna. So it's a it's a, a risk tolerance. It's an appetite. It's, it's a, probably a bit of a really good early adopter, but also have experience in this. So their expectations of what they're going to get, yeah. And then yeah, to exactly. your point, it, often in the B two B space, when we have people in the industry that we serve that we know are just really passionate about it, right? And they're really mm-hmm. passionate mm-hmm. about moving it forward. That would be an interesting space. But I, I could see that it's very easy to go. Oh, I've got even this big client right? Like we always talk to Bob, Bob says he wants, you know, and, and just thinking that that's an easy place. Whereas you may not get a, you may not get the type of feedback you want and you may not really get an open audience because of what you're, of, of who you have there. Yeah, exactly. And in the book, I actually list a few things that to be aware of. Uh, if you see these signs, you're, you're dealing with a pragmatist. You're not dealing with an early adopter, right? Like they want a full functioning, full fledged system. They need all integrations into all the corporate systems. They want a a bigger deployment that it's more of a proof of concept, right? Like they want, oh, it has to be deployed throughout our whole manufacturing facility. Wait, no, right? So that just tells you that they're not they're not early adopters, and you're gonna be in a world of pain, to be honest. Yeah, and I suppose it's not just them too. It's it's the organization with their in could be as well, right? So if you could have a, an early adopter mindset, but in an organization where it is just too structured or or too any number of things to make that that work. 
Yep, exactly, exactly. And so with that, in the early adopter stage, I focus on how to navigate pilot projects. Because in B2B, pilot projects are very, very common. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. this, this early adopter is bringing you in with an untested solution. They have a lot of risk. They're going to want to try it. So that's what pilots are for. But a lot of uh, innovation dies in pilot because there are certain things that they never consider. And so in the early adopter chapter, I talk all about how to run successful pilots, how to identify the challenges, how to get ahead of those, because the goal here is to get that one successful customer. And, and by successful, it means you agree on the value that your product can deliver through that pilot and you achieve that, right? And based on what I said at the beginning, if you have 10 of those, if you have 10 companies that agreed to do a pilot and you're being able to make successful, now 10 customers in the same target market, because that's also the other thing, mm -hmm. right? It's like sometimes like, well, I have 10 customers, one in automotive, one in healthcare, <laughs> one in air. You're not getting convergence of pain. But if you're able to have 10 early adopters in the same target market that are successfully using your solution, then you can exit these six stages. And doesn't mean you're ready to scale, but you're ready to have a discussion with your leadership team to say, we have real tangible customer validation that our product has traction in the market. Here's the next step. And in the book, the last chapter is what are the potential next steps, right? Yeah. But um, but that's the idea. A lot of times, they, very few companies get there. Hopefully, with, with this framework, more companies can say, oh, we skipped this and this so we can go back and fix it, right? But uh, in the past, it's been a little bit of a nebulous process and, and people trying to grab from you know, Lean Startup and all these different things that are not cohesive as a journey. When you think about this journey, and I know you've got lots of experience, and I know there's a bunch in your book, but we would be happy to hear some of your stories for sure. But one of the things I think that would be interesting to get your feedback on is someone hears the innovation and they hear six steps and they hear the journey and it starts to feel heavy and long, right? And I suspect you've seen this take a variety of lengths, right? Short and small. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of you've seen at the time frame for these and what people do to kind of adjust that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think the first thing that I would say is innovation can be long and, and, and long, right? These steps need to happen, mm -hmm. right? You need to understand your market. You need to understand the pains. You need to understand your users. You need to iterate in prototypes. So depending on where you are in the journey, when I work with my, with my clients, we use this as an assessment tool. It's like, do you have strategic alignment? Have you done market discovery? You know, do you have the different gates so we can determine where they are? Usually they say, oh, we're already in prototyping, but they skip like three others. <laughs> and so depending on where we are, where they are, you know, market discovery could take, you know, a couple of weeks, but if they've never done anything like that, could take a couple of months, depending how much resources they have, if they can hire an agency or they can hire an analyst to look at market stuff. So they don't have to take a long, long, long time. But one of the things that I think is very important and a big difference with B2C, you often hear these things that for B2C, you can do 100 experiments in a day. And if you want to learn about your users, just park them on a Starbucks and just grab mm -hmm. them and show. But like if you're building, like in my case, right, you're, you are doing carbon reduction systems in skyscrapers or you're helping with predictive maintenance in wind turbines. It's like, 
there's no Starbucks. That you can <laughs> I was going to say, that's a very specific Starbucks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so a lot of, but a lot of the B2B stuff is like that, right? Even if you're doing enterprise software, business software. Um, and so the, the tip here is that as part of bringing your company along with the innovation journey is setting those expectations that some of these things might take a while just because getting access to the people that can give you the information might take a while, right? How long will it take to get interviews with 10 CFOs of Fortune 500 companies? A lot, right? So just just have to set it up in that perspective. And so, yeah, it could go fast, but a lot of the things that make that the delay this are externalities. And so in B2B, it's pretty common, you know, how fast can you do a deployment on your prototype on a manufacturing line live? Well, that needs to be scheduled and planned. And so part of the innovation of the leadership of the innovator here is setting those expectations and driving leadership through the journey, right? So that they can see the progress so that they know it's not tomorrow. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And like you said, they can see, oh, we are reducing uncertainty because we see the progress that you did in microdiscovery. Great. We see the progress you did in user discovery. Great. Right. So they can actually see progress doesn't have to mean a purchase order. Right. Yep. In innovation, progress is these are the milestones and we're hitting them okay. So we are making progress. Awesome. All right. So lots of good steps, lots of good advice as we think about it, iterative. And and like you said, you, you can't skip a step. These are the stages you need to do. We talked a lot about a different, lots of different things. If, if you were going to talk to someone inside who was trying to start sort of a, who wanted to be able to make some space in their organization for some innovation, what are the two things you would have them do differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today? Yes. Um, Great question. What I would say, and I actually say it at the end of the book, and it's kind of, I jokingly say it, but literally give this book to people in your leadership teams. Mm. It is really difficult to explain the journey and explain why you need to do things and what are the outputs of each ones, but I've done the heavy lifting on that. So leverage this material to say, hey, we want to do innovation. Here's what it looks like. You know, steal this diagram. It's not magic. Here's the work we're going to need to do. Yeah. And this is what it means. And therefore, these are the resources that I need. So I understand what you're asking me. Therefore, here's what it would take. And this is how we would get there. So leverage this content so that you can paint a picture in your teams and your leadership teams to say, oh, okay, now I know what it would take to do innovation. They might say, ah, too much. Shut down. We'll do the you know, but but honestly, while that would be hard to hear, it would be better to know than you to get halfway through it and then realize that this organization wasn't going to embrace it. Exactly. And and I actually sometimes advise people when they tell me, it's like, you know, I've been doing this innovation thing and, and the, the company is not open and it's not willing to do this. And how do you recommend that I move forward? It's like, I recommend you just get a different job. Right. This may just not be the place for you. This might not be the place for it, right? So it doesn't it doesn't work like that. I think the other the other piece of advice that I would give people is that the innovation journey needs to be adjusted for the culture within your company. Mm. I think it's very tempting to say, "Oh, I just download this template for Google. Google is innovative, so it must work." Mm. It's not true. In the book, I try not to be super prescriptive from a cultural perspective. Right. So how do you do strategic alignment in your company? I have some, some tutorials, but 
you need to know what works best with your executives, how you communicate this, what forums, all those things, right? So it's very important to understand that innovation is contextual to your company, to the speed, to the resources, to the maturity level of innovation in your company. So you can still use the same map, but you might need to spend a lot more time just training people and getting buy-in so that they can actually do something like this, right? Awesome. All right. I know these are topics that you like to write about, to talk about, to share about. If somebody wanted to reach out to you or learn more about Daniel and and the sort of framework, where would you send them? Thank you for that. Um, a couple of places. So my website it would be the best. So danielelisalde.com. And then the book has all this information, the B2B Innovators Map. You can get it on Amazon or on my website. And um, on my website, I also have my blogs and my podcasts and, and many other things that I do. So, uh, and reach out I'm on LinkedIn. And I would love to hear about folks' innovation journey, which is very aligned to what uh, you teach at Pragmatic Institute. So it's this is something that we all need to move forward if we truly need to innovate, right? So it's Absolutely. a collective effort. Yeah. And it feels like, again, it is, as you said, it's the concepts that fits very nicely in with the, the concepts we teach and provides a really focused framework forward for it. So I think it's great. And as always, Daniel, it is a wonderful pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I always enjoy our conversations. This is the third time and, and I'm happy to come back any day. Who knows what will happen in uh, the fourth episode with Daniel and I? Mm. Who yes. knows? Got to stay tuned. Yes, exactly. All right. I'll come up with another framework or something. Yeah, I don't right. know. I won't make you write a whole other book beforehand, though. I mean, <laughs> you could, but we, I don't think it's a hard requirement. That's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big line. But um, all right, everyone. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much. And thank everybody for listening. Uh, that does it for this episode. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. Yeah.